What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is the Wells Cast with Wells Adams, an iHeartRadio podcast. Welcome into the Wells Cast, another episode that we're doing from my hometown of Monterey, California in Pebble Beach, California, and I'm so excited for the guests we have today, but I will say, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you should. I had uh, one of my good friends, mentor, and also, I think he's just my boss, as uh, Chris Harrison on the Wells Cast. If you've never figured out how the hell Chris Harrison got to host one of the most iconic television shows ever, you should listen to the episode that happened last week. This week, we have the host of a phenomenal show called How Men Think. Gavin DeGraw, what you know him as a singer, probably, but you might not know him as an amazing podcast host. You're are, too kind. No, well, you, you can't talk yet. No, this Take is, it back. Redact did. Gavin, this is an intro. Everyone listening right now, pretend like you didn't hear that, okay? I'm not here. Gavin's not here. A lot of people got pregnant from a lot of Gavin's songs. <laughs> you might be someone listening right now thinking, that whole kid that I've got, it's because of Gavin. Well, guess what? You're about to find out how the hell... Gavin got to the point that made you pregnant. Right here <laughs> on the Wells Cast. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parish, from my new series, Parish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from a life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. All right, welcome back to the Wells cast. Very excited about today's episode. <laughs> we have Gavin DeGraw on the show. You can speak now. What's up, Well, How are you, buddy? Thanks for letting me chit-chat with you. Yeah, you can talk now. You Thinking about the intro, my pregnancy. Yeah. How many kids do you think that you have created not with your own wiener, but through the majesty of song? Not as much as alcohol has done. Well, but hold on. Alcohol probably has multiplied the earth much more than any Gavin DeGraw song ever could. But I also feel like alcohol and Gavin DeGraw coming together is a beautiful thing. And it's made a lot of (laughs) terrible kids. Probably some awful kids. What do you Yeah. Some pretty aggravated teachers out there probably Mm -hmm. from that combo. Yeah. Vicious. You did it. Thank you. You made it. I wrote it. I wrote it for that. Yeah, for that exact intention. Wrote what? Um, uh, music. Yeah, uh, <laughs> okay. hoping that people would uh, procreate, uh-huh. uh huh, and and per- perhaps raise little little hell demons. Hopefully, not hell demons. I want to like get into your backstory, but like, yeah, are, do you ever write songs and you're like, people are going to definitely have sex to this? <laughs> oh, oh boy, <laughs> uh, you know what's so weird? Um, Typically, that's so far removed from my train of thought. Um, I I found that by writing songs that were um, sultry and um, and emotional, and um, I wouldn't call them necessarily spiritual, but but certainly some element of, 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 of spirituality. 
um, that it, it creates a, a different sort of uh, sort of listening experience. Yeah. Um, I think for people, depending upon the song, there's songs that you hear that aren't necessarily about um, a person, but they're about a feeling. Yeah. And and I think sometimes when you when you write music or play music that is about a feeling and sensation, um, it can it can create maybe more of that that mood um, without it necessarily being you know really hitting that nail on the head of oh this song is a sexy song you know what I mean yeah. I think I think songs are sexier when they're when they're not necessarily being so directly about sexuality I think songs that are about emo- emotional connection and um, and a little bit more um, lofty ideas and thoughts are really just so much more uh, uh, sort of accidentally uh, sexy and sultry. And um, I think those are the songs that are the biggest turn on as a as a listener, at least at least for me. Yeah. Um, so some some of the music I think was interpreted as being sexy when I when I didn't write it as anything sexy at all. To be totally honest with you. I think I find it funny because like there are different types of art, right? Like if if you make a movie about Die Hard, then it's about Die Hard. Mm. And it's about you know a guy trying to save a building or whatever. Depending upon the architect, you must save a building. You got to save the building. But yeah, for, like but, I am pay. Got to save that one. But for but for like musicians it's so personal with yeah. the listener because you can write a song that mm. could be about one thing mm-hmm. and then a listener can hear it and it could be completely different for them 100% I remember so I come from a radio background mm-hmm. and I was interviewing a band called All J who has a song uh, called Matilda mm-hmm. which is my grandmother's name so I went up to him and I was like oh my god dude you guys wrote a song called Matilda I that's my grandmother's name. I played mm. that at my grandmother's funeral. Mm. It means so much to me. And they mm. were like, oh, yeah, that's about the movie The Professional, which mm. is about like a, a hitman. You I know? love that movie. It's a great movie. Great movie. But it has nothing to do with like Gary how Oldman's performance in that movie is amazing. amazing. Sorry. Sorry to get diverted. But also like has nothing to do with like how wonderful my grandmother is. Sure. But that's the problem that you run into, right? Yeah. Like you can be writing things mm-hmm. that mean one thing to you and mm-hmm. then you have people come up to you and you're mm-hmm. like, Oh my god, that thing meant so much to me and you're like, mm-hmm. That's not even close to 100%. what I was talking about. Hundred percent. Yeah. But I also think uh, I mean that that's perfectly accurate, but at the same time, I think sometimes, um, actually, often I'll write songs that are designed to be interpreted in many ways. Mm-hmm. You write it intentionally to be say to be interpreted at least two ways, um, or um, I'm sorry, Tori, but we're trying to do a yeah, podcast sorry, Tori, here. We're and, trying to, um, yeah, car- are you? Oh my God, Tori, are you going to be okay? Just, just get it out. I love, love having the opportunity to correct the <laughs> producer for a change. Oh my god! <laughs> She's crying a little bit. Were you yeah. just listening to some of his music? Is that why you're crying? She was like, "This is such bullshit. It makes me want to sneeze." <laughs> <laughs> it's so full of. Shit. 
Um, <laughs> are you good now, or yeah, do you I'm need sorry. some time? Legit, need to open a window. You okay? <laughs> are you good? Would you like a sip of water? Do you want some Bud Light? <laughs> do you want some of Chris Harrison's Seagram Escape Tropical Rosé? Available at all the hardware stores nationwide. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Every Ace Hardware store. Could you imagine? <laughs> that would be funny as hell. <laughs> Could you imagine if you design a drink, you're like, this is going global. And then the only place it ends up selling is at the hardware store. Like, nobody, nobody's going to be buying that drink at the hardware store. Dude, we got to go down to Ace, man. They have a special on some of that seltzer. Dude, Home Depot's got that good shit. <laughs> Yo man, go down there. Yo man, if you don't mind, go pick me up some snow shovels, <laughs> a two by four, uh, and, and some tacks. I need oh some, yeah, pick up some of that delicious seltzer. <laughs> I need some drywall and some seltzer. Could you? <laughs> uh, the fact that I got Gavin to be this tickled makes me feel really good. <laughs> that is so funny. Man. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get back to it. Well, that- Hardware stores nationwide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I forgot, but it was very important. Yeah, we were talking about how like people uh, perceive songs differently than they yes. really are. Okay, like, so that's how art works, I guess. Com- completely. So, so yes, they do. They they really do. And but here's the thing: when you're writing the song, you're hoping that at least I am. I'm hoping that people will have a very personal connection with the song somehow. And there's different ways to go about writing songs, right? You can write songs hoping that they'll hear your story. Mm-hmm. You can write songs hoping to speak for their story. And and you can also write songs that are so specifically your story that you don't care if they share your story with you. You can do that approach. Like you're writing a song. You may write a song thinking, oh, this is something I'm sure they can relate to yeah. about me. Or you're writing a song that you think they can relate to about themselves or you're writing something that's so you that they just want a window into your story to know more about your life yeah right that's like that's like the Woody Allen approach right you write so specifically your local vibe that people are like wow what's that's what it's like to be a New Yorker in that neighborhood you know what I mean it's so Woody Allen you know yeah so so I write from different from different angles so but depending on the song you're writing very specifically you sometimes you're writing Something a little more ethereal. Sometimes you're writing, hoping that you're representing them because maybe you've got a few friends who are going through something that's similar. Like, you know, you got two, three buddies going through something similar at the time to each other. And you're like, you know what? I got to write a song about this because I got like two, three people in my life going through this kind of shit, you know? I should write something about that. But then, of course, someone will come up to you and say, okay, I heard that song, whatever that song may be. And uh, one day I wrote this song about this this woman. And someone came up to me and they said to me, wow, your song, you know, insert the name here. The way you're talking to God and I'm identifying with that relationship with God and it's so intimate. 
I too have felt that way. And I and I said to them, I said, you know, I'm really happy you're telling me that because I up until now that song was only between me and someone. But you make me feel like that message is much bigger than I had even thought thought of. I couldn't I wasn't thinking that big at that time. Yeah. But from that point on, the song took on a larger meaning to me, mm-hmm. ironically. And, and it was the first time and, and the only time I heard a song interpreted in a way that made the song more meaningful to me than when I had written it for myself. Yeah, so that that thing re-identified itself to you. 100%. Do you have and that was a fan thinking bigger about the song than I had? Yeah, you know what I mean. It was a bigger picture, and uh, I, I feel like it, that's was, how, it was heavy. I feel like that's how, that's how parents feel about you a lot. Like they think so much bigger of you than mm-hmm. you do, and then they'll mm-hmm. talk to you, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's you're right. That's what I was thinking." Um, right. I guess my next question is of the three modes of transportation in terms of songwriting do you have a favorite uh, writing a song for a thing that you're seeing outside of uh your friend group or whatever a, a thing that's happening to you personally or a message that you want to portray or of mm-hmm. those three of those three things that you kind of mentioned mm-hmm. do you have a preferred method of writing for me i like to write about <clears throat> Try to find something that allows me to really identify myself within the tune. Um, first person. Yeah. And then um, be very specific and highly ambiguous at the same time so that they can interpret it or misinterpret it. Yeah. For their own life. Um specific in general it's a very peculiar way to go about yeah, it i guess it's got to be a hard tightrope to walk it's a, t- it's a tough one you know i don't want to just every time just tell a story yeah tom walked to the store the mm-hmm. store was closed so then he went to the park that's where he met a lady named you know i don't, I don't really do that type of songwriting he went so much. to ace hardware and that's where he that's found where he bought C- the fabulous seltzer <laughs> exactly <laughs> so so anyway, um, you know, I, I like to blend a lot of things because I grew up in a very religious uh, household. Um, I like to to allude to something that isn't necessarily just me and her, but rather something me and uh, and this like God thing. Yeah, you know, but that doesn't necessarily have to be interpreted as a God thing. It could be a relationship with with a human or with something bigger than us as a species, you know? Yeah. And, 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 um, I oftentimes like to leave out the love interest element of things. I just try to create a relationship uh, element of things. So you, uh, rather than just being interpersonal, it can be, you know, looking for something that's grander, uh, than just you on your own. So it could be, it's not necessarily religious, it's not necessarily just personal. It could be one of those things that's just something that's about about a meaning of having a relationship, something that means a lot to you. And that could be interpreted as a, a, a woman you're in love with, a partner, 
or something bigger than us as a human race. And so it may sound silly, I think, but um, some songs I, I take that I take that approach. And also, I, I like to write a lot of identity songs. I like to write songs that um, point out failure or um, point out where I lack, but also point out that there's there are other things out there or someone else out there that makes up for where I, you know, am um, where I fall short. Yeah, and and I think that we all fall, fall short somewhere, and. Um, as a songwriter, I don't think it's necessary to just paint yourself out to be triumphant about every element of your life. It's just simply disingenuous. So I think a lot of people can identify with the reality of needing help or needing someone else or or at least appreciating help from someone else or interest from someone else who wants to be in your life to take you to another level in your life, and your whether it be in your love life or your spirituality or 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 your level of success or failure or at least looking past your failures to find that part of you that they think is special that doesn't matter if you're if you're doing well or not they they're proud of you for even making the attempt so <clears throat> i don't know i take a lot of different approaches with with songwriting and i think it's important to explore a lot of those those parts of of yourself as a as a songwriter and also to expose your vulnerabilities as a songwriter um, yet at the same time to not be afraid of your alter egos as a songwriter mm-hmm. because we all have alter egos. And so um, I'll also point out that as a songwriter, when you're also the artist and the songwriter, oftentimes you're held accountable for whatever the material is that you're writing or whatever material it is that you're playing. So if I write a song about an alter ego, right? Um, sometimes you're worried as a, the writer or the, the the artist that you'll be held accountable for the material if it doesn't suit the other material that they'd heard first. Yeah. Right? So, <clears throat> for example, if I write a song about my humility or my weakness on an earlier record and then two or three records later I write a song about my confidence, some may say, well, I liked it better when you were humble. Yeah, but you're saying you're still humble. You're just expressing a moment of confidence in this other tune, just to celebrate things being good for you, mm-hmm. you know, your life going well. And so, you know, for example, I wrote a song called "Leading Man." You know, I wanted to write a song that made people feel like, you know, like they had swagger. You know, yeah. And you know, it was the opening line was like, uh, "Walk in like a fistful of bottle rockets." It's on with the flint from my back pocket. You know what I mean? It was just about being so alpha and so over the top. Yeah. You know? And we, we of which we've all seen that guy walk into the club. Yeah. Well, you know? it, well, it kind of, right? And we've also always, we've all been that person who's felt real good you walking You feel really good. Exactly. Yeah. You walk in and you're like, damn, I feel really good tonight, man. Or we'll I feel see- like I got the right on you know what i'm saying like i'm here with the right people for this place mm-hmm. and you know what i mean like yeah. dude's got my back and robot you know what i mean i know the bartender like hey what's up guy? i'm like yeah i feel really good in here right you know what i mean that's that that environment and so you write a song about that type of thing and 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 that's an expression of yourself or that's an element of who you are but as an artist knowing that you're held accountable for what you're putting out, you know that sometimes there's going to be some sort of 
flack for that too. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, we liked it better when you know you were singing about you weren't sure if you fit in at that mm-hmm. place, and then you know the next song is yeah, I feel like I own this place. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so as an artist, you, you you keep that in mind too. But for me, I think it's an, important to express all of those elements of yourself because that's who I am. Yeah, you know, and I think that's who all of us are. The show, I don't know if anyone told you, but the show is an origin story show, Mm -hmm. this one. Um, I'm obsessed with how people got to where they are. Mm. So I want to get into that. Like, it's been very interesting to, like, hear a little bit of that, and I actually kind of, like, want to dive back in at the end. Mm -hmm. But I want to know where you came from. Yeah, okay. Um. Okay, here's where I came from. Have you ever seen the movie Dirty Dancing? Yes. You know what's funny? My fiance was in the movie Dirty Dancing, the like the second iteration. <clears throat> You're kidding me. I'm not. What was it called? Still Dirty? Still di- it's just Dirty Dancing. It's still Dirty Dancing. <laughs> they didn't change it. <laughs> still dancing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's actually amazing. Small yeah. world. So so the movie Dirty Dancing um was fundamentally based on an area of upstate New York. Okay. Okay. During a very specific era in American history. Used to be referred to as the Borscht Belt. Yeah. Right? The Catskill Mountains region was a place where a lot of people from New York City would go during the summer times to get out of the heat, to get a little breather, be in the in the mountains, get nice, beautiful, perfect climate summers. And prior to Las Vegas, it was the most popular place for performers to go up and perform. So you had everybody performing up there during those summer times. So in the 1950s and 1960s, the heyday of it, you'd see, you know, Sinatra up there, and you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Sam Cooke, and you name it, right? So my great granddad was a dance instructor and an MC at a hotel up there because that's what that was the mecca of it, right? And he would make his kids give dance lessons to the guests too, right? So it was very much like dirty yep. dancing, okay? And I've got these great pictures of my great granddad with like Sam Cooke and Ella Fitzgerald, and you know, from the era. Well, the economy died up there over time, whether it was bad politics or, you know, air conditioning becoming more normal or air travel becoming (laughs) more affordable, right? Yeah. Whatever it would be. And um, over time, the state of New York ended up building prisons in upstate New York to, you know, help the local economy. So I ended up growing up in the prison town era of the Dirty Dancing area. Okay, so most of the hotels were closed down, were closing down, and the area was really, uh, I'd say, economically depressed. Let's just say, I think that's the term, right? The politically correct term for poor. And uh, ultimately, even though my pops was, you know, really a musician, and my mom was a musician, that's what they were at heart, and they had played music and stuff like that. Ultimately, you know, they had to get. You know, everybody got real, you know, normal jobs. My dad ended up working for the state of New York and worked at a Maxi Max prison. 
So my hometown had three prisons in it. And a uh, small town, though. You know, I mean, I graduated with 80 people. So you can imagine <clears throat> it was like a good part of the local economy. So you're going to school, whether you know, knew it or not at the time, you essentially were going to school with definitely, there were definitely inmates' kids and officers' kids growing up together. That was mm-hmm. certainly a part of the of the local community, even yeah. though it wasn't something we thought about really as children. But now that I think back on it, I realize that was part of it mixed in with whoever was left over from the old school era of people who vacationed up there and probably fell in love with the mountains and decided let's move to the mountains from new york and this and that you know so it's old money maybe a little bit of that maybe a little bit of old money maybe it's probably one (laughs) percent and then people who are dealing with the convicts Kids. Yeah, yeah, and mixed in with some, you know, some town jobs, a lot of town jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mostly, mostly whatever jobs kind of came through through local government or state government. You yeah. know what I mean? And they had a good portion of that school uh, on the free lunch program. You know, mm-hmm. like right now, if you looked at my hometown, there's probably seventy <clears> percent <throat> of that school is probably on a free lunch program. You know, would be probably my guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's that's the town, you know. So it was one of those places where, you know, we we saw the trajectory I think years ago of where it was headed, only because we knew where, what it was compared to prior to that. We're like, oh, so it used to be really, really nice up here and thriving, yeah. you know. And every time my dad, you know, would drop me off to school, you know, like if I missed the bus or something, that God it used to be so around here man used to be girls walking up and down this road all the mm-hmm. time it was the best you know so what was the name of this town yeah. it's called fallsburg okay fallsburg new york and the town i grew up in it was a hamlet of the town of fallsburg called south fallsburg okay there was no northwest or east fallsburg but there was a south fallsburg okay and fallsburg was made up of a bunch of other hamlets hurleyville woodburn woodridge mountaindale <coughs> lock shelter and had this really checkered um sort of um, story <clears throat> on top of that about 25 30 minutes away is where the original Woodstock festival happened okay and so which was actually a town called Bethel New York never actually happened in the town of Woodstock a lot of people don't know that as far you snobby artists out there who's like mm-hmm. I got a place in Woodstock I'm like Woodstock really never happened there so you know <laughs> it happened in Bethel guys sorry sorry to break it to you um and uh you know what i'm saying i'm a like, yeah. cool little town but you know that never happened in your town mm-hmm. um you know and so i grew up hearing all the stories about woodstock and you know my dad and my mother were at woodstock together my dad was there with his draft papers for vietnam in his back pocket you know and he didn't want to go to war and this and that you know it was the era um so but it was always so there was that undertone of Woodstock happened near here, mm-hmm. and all the entertainment used to be around here, but we're kind of growing up in this really economically you know, stressed out, tough place to live. The weather always sucks. Like after summer's over, it's 
you know, it gets real up there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not like everybody had a plow truck. You know, my father would make me go snow shovel my our driveway. Then I'd have to go snow shovel my other neighbor. And then I would have to go snow shovel my other neighbor. I remember he made me go do that right before a basketball game. I had a scrimmage. He goes, so shovel out our cars. Then go do Effie. Now go do Happy. And I did. I went to a ball game. The basketball felt like it weighed 800 pounds. Yeah. I couldn't even hold it in my hands. I was like, I'm out of here. Let me out of here. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But that was the town. You know, it's not like everybody had like a plow truck or was getting their their driveway plowed. You know, it was like, go dig it out, man. And that's just how we grew up. And um, and so I, I just think that that environment, though, I think was very helpful. You know, In what way? Because my father, I remember when I told him I was going to play music for a living. Mm-hmm. He said. Uh, he said. He said, "Good. I think you should do that. But just so you know, you're not going to be some lazy ass artist. Yeah. You know, you're going to work for it. You're going to outwork everybody. Is how you're going to do it. I don't want you to think because you're an artist, you could be like some kind of fucking bum. Yeah. You know what I mean? He said, "You got to go and you got to work for it. And you got to work harder than everybody. Work it like it's a normal job, and you really need it because you do." Because we don't have money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so and so, all that stuff kind of added up for me. And I remember when I was about uh, 19, 18 or 19 years old, we went down to a local garage. As a, we lived seven-tenths of a mile from Main Street. And uh, cars getting work done. And, uh, you know, we never had any money, man. I mean, I remember going to the... Local lumber yard, Fallsburg Lumber. And I remember when the guy would, you know, my dad would be like, hey, what do I owe you? He'd be like, oh, it's such and such. I remember, I remember being at that age where I was tall enough to see into my father's wallet, but not by much. Yeah. And I remember he'd be like, what's that number again? And he'd open up his wallet and he'd look in that wallet like he was counting bills. Yeah. But there weren't any. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing in there. And I remember thinking, we're broke. Mm-hmm. And my father would lean back and he'd say, "Sorry, man, I just don't have that much that much on me right now. Can I pay you next? You know, next time I see you." Oh yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. I remember this great guy Stevie Levine lived up the road. Yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. On the lumberyard, and I remember one day we go pick up the uh, the car from a local. Garage downtown. Frankie Stratton was his name. Great guy. And uh, my father stops by, stops by there to pay off, you know, repair on the car, you know. And uh, we leave the garage and we're headed up to his parents' house, my father's parents' house. They lived about a mile from the garage. We lived about seven tenths of a mile from town. So you know, that's how I grew up. You know, near the parent, near the grandparents, etc. I love the seven tenths of a mile, though. By the way, it's so specific. Yeah, it means a lot when you got to walk the town. I, like every <laughs> it's so. You've said it a couple of times, and I've thought, yeah. "Wow, that's so specific." And yeah, let's right? Continue on. I'm sorry. No, all good. So I remember he paid off the, the garage, and we got in the car, and I said to my dad, as we're going over this low bridge, this bridge was probably. It wasn't really like a real. It wasn't like a significant bridge. It just went over the local piece of the local lake, little little edge of it. You know, it was five feet above the water. You know, it was a hundred feet long. Yeah. 
And I says, Dad, if you could change anything about your life, what would it be? And uh, he says, says to me, he turns to me, he goes, I never would have stopped playing music, he says. I said, no? He said, yeah, I never would have stopped playing music. That's, that's one thing I'd change. And I thought, noted, you know, I remember that. And I remember I thought to myself, I don't want to be the guy in the car with his kids thinking to himself, I didn't chase my dreams. And heavily enough, I thought, and I knew it was my father's dream to play music. And it's part of what lent itself to my desire to accomplish the mission of playing music for a living because I wanted to validate my father. Yeah. And I wanted to validate my mother's grandfather. I wanted to validate that there was talent there and that it wasn't bullshit to pursue talent. It's not a pipe dream. And and that um and that it's uh it's not a last resort to pursue your passion. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it requires a level of professionalism to accomplish the mission and bravery. And uh and and so once upon a time, I'm nineteen years old, I'm dropping out of my second college and I just visited my my mother's sister's family. All right, put us in place in time. Where what nineteen college? years old Berkeley College of Music. Okay, so that's but also like that's a very like well known, right? Musical college, right? It's like Berkeley and Belmont are the two big ones. Right. I feel like in the country. So right. you're dropping out of Berkeley, right? Okay, I'm dropping out of school again, and I'm about to. I'm telling them I'm going to drop out of school. Yeah, again, and uh, they're asking me why, mm-hmm. and I said. This gets me emotional. Yeah. So I said, it's because this is holding me back. College is pay to play. And what I mean is you're paying to be in a safe place to pursue your passion. And that's f***ing lame. That's not courageous. That's not the job market. That's where people go when they're scared of the real world. world. That's where their parents send them when they're fucking scared to death that their baby will be out in the real world. Yeah. Period. College is where you send your kids because you're a scared parent and you're afraid your kids are going to make bad decisions. You know what I'm saying? It's a halfway house. Yeah. And guess what? It's a very expensive one. It is very expensive one. That's right. And and so from where you came from an extremely expensive one. That's right. And so, unless you're getting a scholarship, free ride totally. Yeah. Or unless you're going to medical school, unless you're becoming an architect. Yeah. I say, save your dough, invest that buck in your rent to mm-hmm. chase your dream. Because if you're going to be out of the job market, accumulating tremendous debt, debt 
it's way worse, way worse debt than you would have been in if you were playing a couple gigs a night. Yeah. Working a job. I mean, think about the debt you're in then. You know what I'm saying? Like, no. well, it's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. The math doesn't add up for me. Now, if that adds up for someone else's parents, you know, I blow you a kiss. But <laughs> it doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I realized the fear of the folks was mostly just that they were afraid I wouldn't have a backup plan. Okay, but hold on. So you you tell them this. And like I imagine, yeah. like from, from what I've heard of the story, your parents seem very blue-collar. You go yeah. to college. You go to college, you get a good job. You get a good job, you get a good pension. You get a good pension, your kids are me fine. Like I, like I can hear that. You're telling your parents, hey, mm-hmm. listen, I'm bailing out of this school, which is, by the way, just so people know, mm. it's not easy to get into the Berkeley College of Music. It's not. You're now leaving this place. Mm. What is their response? Sure, you should do this. Sure, this and that. I don't know if this is the right move. I said, this is the right move. Every year, I told them this very fundamentally. I play music for a living. Yeah. kind of music I want to play for a living, I want the world to hear. But the problem is, when you're trying to play music that the world's going to hear, and you know that there's a limited time when you can do that, your youth is a window that's always closing. Yeah. Okay? And the fundamentals are that the market knows that. So therefore, the window of opportunity is always closing. So the longer I delay to head to that window, yeah. the more narrow that opening is going to be. And if I'm going to sit there in a college wasting my youth out of the competitive market to perform music, that's another two, three Four years of my youth where you I'm marketable. But you had the wherewithal to see that? Like, th- that yeah. is what you're saying is empirically so correct, yeah. but also very hard to grasp at 19 years old. Yeah. I think you're right. But, you know, when you look at the success, and, and, and you're right, I guess, because, but when you look at the success of what was happening, with popular music, you know, you'd see, you always see boy bands. Yeah. You see, um, you know, child stars and things like that. And that's all over the radio. And occasionally an anomaly breaks through of an act that actually, you know, plays their instrument and they can sing and they write songs. I knew I was not going to be in a boy band. That's, yeah. That doesn't speak to me. And I knew I was no longer 13. You know what I mean? I didn't have stage parents and that type of thing. You know, that kind of stuff never really appealed to me. It's not what I wanted. I wanted to make the kind of music I loved listening to when I was growing up. When I was like a big Billy Joel fan and, you know, Tom Petty and Bob Seger and the Beatles and, you know, uh, Mellencamp and, you know, Elton and Sam Cooke and Marvin Gaye and, you know, musicians, musicians. Musicians that musicians look up to. Yeah. You know? And I, but I also knew just to be realistic that no nobody was going to be interested in signing a fifty year old musician. You know, you got to yeah. go in when you're when you're young enough because the audience that distinguishes listeners' taste is always a younger audience to begin with. And 
And so I knew I was already at a disadvantage because I was already 19. And I thought that was too old. In fact, uh, probably the most depressing day of my life was the day I turned 21. Because I thought, that's it. I didn't make it yet, and I'm already 21. Game over. Really? Yep. Okay, yep. so you turned 21. Yep. Your big hit comes at what year? Years later. I mean, I'll tell you what. When I was 19, I told my folks I was leaving school, and I was all upset. We had it, we had it out, you know? My pops got out of the car, and we was crying. I was mm. crying. He's he back up in New York? This is outside of Berkeley, outside my apartment. Okay. He says, uh, you're my hero, he said to me. It's heavy. Yeah. I said, what? He says to me, you're my hero. I said, why would you say that? He said, this is heavy for me. Hold on. He said, do it. He said, I never had the courage to do what you're doing. Yeah. To go all in. And I know you do. I said, thank you. That was it. You know? Big. Yeah. And uh, because the thing that I think is is most frustrating. Is that the most power that you need? Like, is that the most win in your sales that you can get? Your father's... uh, your father telling you you're a hero. Yes, like, tremendous. I don't know if, if there's anything other than that. Like I, you, you said that. I said, well, what happened? Yeah. Your dad saying that you're my hero. Yeah. That's like, well, I, I can, I can tackle Mount Everest now. You know, like that's yeah. so big. Yeah. Right. Well, this is the same guy that, you know, six years later I came off my first hit. <laughs> And I got out of the van, exhausted, driving all night. And I crawled out of the van, and he had been laying gravel in front of the house. And I went to give him a hug. I said, Dad, I good to see you. And he gave me half a hug. He walked over me with a pickaxe. He gave me half a hug. He said, good to see you. Take this pickaxe. I need you to dig a trench from that. Edge of the property line over there. Over to that. Edge of the property line over there. <laughs> I said, Dad, I've been driving all night. He goes, that's okay. Don't forget where you came from. I need you to dig a trench from that <laughs> edge of the property line. Not deep. Just yay deep. Just keep the rain off the house. I was like, what? You'll be good. You'll be done in a few hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um... But that was my pops. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, that was years later. That was, I was 27. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Okay, so... I want to get back to you breaking through mm. because it's one thing for your dad to be in tears being like, you can do the thing that I could never do. And that means so much to me. And that mm. meant so much to you. Mm. But I want to get to the point of which your father seeing it mm. makes it all worthwhile because there was a time. Mm. That happened. I I know there was mm. where your dad was like, I was right about him. Mm. Well, he, my father was a because he had played music for a living, and he knew that that um, that world and that um, feeling, and he knew he had talent for it. My brother and I played music, you know, growing up through high school and played ballrooms and stuff you know when you quit playing ball and you're like your buddy's like yo man you want to come search something actually nah man i'll be at the bar tonight you know it's tuesday yeah you know what i mean <laughs> and like me and my brother are playing gigs you know my dad be out there hanging out having a beer you know getting up playing with us and stuff like that and that's just how he grew up you know and um it, it created a different sort of family uh dynamic and f families that play music together are, i think are unlike any other type of family I, there's another family i grew up with named the roushes and they all played music they're a great group of people and they all played great actually seth who's also my age um he's in uh he's keith urban's drummer he's a wonderful musician he grew up you know 
down the you know the next the next town over you know me and his cousin went to the prom together you know what i mean yeah i mean it's like just a you know musical families and um it gives those families another excuse to hang out it's like yeah come hang out you bring your drum kit and all such and such and i'll bring a banjo and you bring such and such you know it's a whole nother culture when you got families that are playing music yeah you know you're going having a family reunion having a hoot nanny you know and you're all campfiring and you know, somebody's roasting a pig and you know people are playing they're picking and playing accordion and and singing old you know hank williams songs and stuff like that and so it's another world really you know mm-hmm. um and so my father seeing uh these small successes happen, and my mother seeing these small successes happen, and the rest of the family seeing these small successes happen, gave them something to you know talk about back home, yeah, and to be proud of, and you know your neighbors were proud, and they were hanging out, and they were coming down, and seeing a show here and there in New York City, and they wanted to support you. It's a beautiful thing, you know, when you're um, in a small town, also. You know, there's maybe there's less events happening, so it's nice when somebody, you know, they're 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 proud of you. They tend to be, you know, a lot of people are proud of you when you're out in the big city trying to make it. And maybe you're having a little bit of success. Um, they're calling their friends or their family members. Hey, do you know anybody who works at such and such? Gavin's got a gig. Do you think you could have? You know what I mean? They're all doing what little you know. If they can do anything, they're trying. Yeah, you know. Um. Yeah, of course, you know, you, you even from a small town, you're going to have your haters. You're going to have the guy who hates your guts because you got out. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always that guy, you know, the one who, no matter how nice you ever were to him, all he's thinking is, f*** you. You know, there's go- always going to be that. You can't do anything about that. There's yeah. nothing you can do about that. You know, um, you just got to keep going. And, um, but, but fundamentally, you know, those people, the people who knew you when you were growing up, they're really proud of you because they know it's such a bizarre, impossible dream to see your passion come to fruition, um, particularly in the arts. You know, it's we all know it's an opinion based game. Yeah. So it's not like you're playing basketball and someone's like, you're obviously the best basketball player, so you'll be on this team. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You could be the greatest musician in the world and not ever get a gig. Yeah. You know, because it's. Well, it's according to my opinion, it's not very good. You yeah. know, someone will say so. You know what I mean? It's not like basketball—you're just dunking on everybody's ass. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like if you were the greatest, and you're clearly just dominating everybody. Music is different. You know, it's an—it's an art. It's an opinion. So, so no matter how much time you put in, uh, and no matter how good you think, you. Of no, no matter how good of a job you think you're doing, someone will say it's garbage. You know, yeah, it's just the nature of it. You know, some people won't like it just because it does sound nice. They go, it's too nice for me. Like, yeah, oh, whatever. Give me a break. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is just the nature of it. You know, I know, but the moment that like <laughs> you had a hit, yeah, you know, like it was charting, it was on the radio, yeah, like it was a thing, yeah. What did your family say then? Like, yeah. because like it's so dope that like your parents were 
championing you beforehand. Oh, yeah. And like being like, the fact that you're living your dream yeah. is I, what I actually why I've worked so hard because I yeah. want my kids to live that thing. 100%. Like, yeah, they were like, don't do what I do. Of course. You know what I mean? But here's what I want to hear about. I want to hear yeah. about the time yeah. that your parents heard that song. Yeah. Or, or like we're like, I can't get any more tickets because it's sold out. You yeah, know, like sure. I want that story. Yeah, and then there's several there's several layers to it. Okay, so my brother Joey is a dynamite musician, and uh, actually look for his record; it'll be coming out. It's called uh, "The Steady Drinkers." So, um, I love it. It's a great name, right? <laughs> <laughs> Straight up f-ing rock band, and um, so. So he uh, he's always been uh, somebody who was listening to music and showing me music and stuff like that because I was a little brother, you know. Yeah. So he'd say, "Oh God, you got to hear this record." Blah blah. blah. You know, we get in the car and he's playing like some old Boston record. No, mm-hmm. I close my eyes. Yeah. And I <laughs> away. You know, or like Queen records and things like this. And so anyway, um, I would play, you know, all these cover songs, you know, because he and I were playing these cover bands. So one day he walks in to the room where the piano was at, and we had this rickety, just crap piano at the house. You know, some of the keys didn't work. It was a little out of tune, you know, and I didn't really have a good instrument. And But I'd be in there, like, looking at these books, reading all these, you know, songs, figuring out these songs I liked. And he said, What are you doing? I said, I'm practicing. You know, I'm learning this song, learning that song. He said, Why don't you write your own song? Why don't you write your own songs? I said, Well, all the. All the great ones are already written. I may as well just learn these, you know. Which is ironic because when I was a kid, I used to write songs when I was like a little kid. Yeah. But then I stopped because I thought, eh, what am I doing? It's embarrassing. So he told me, well, if you don't write your own songs, I'm 15. Why should anybody remember you? Which is a challenge. So I immediately began writing songs, literally that day. Literally. I actually remember the first tune I ever wrote. In that capacity, at the piano, the descending bass line, I'm ripping off the Beatles, I'm writing about some girl and her very complex story, and it's really elaborate, and I was thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? I know nothing about this. Yeah. I'm singing about somebody's story just to make up some interesting story about something I knew nothing about to tug at heartstrings. And although I liked the tune, all I could think of was, this is utter bullshit. Yeah. This story is bull. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But for years, I would play these songs with my brother. We ended up moving to Manhattan, March 1998. We got a one-bedroom apartment. We shared a bedroom in Hell's Kitchen. 49th between 9th and 10th across the streets from a high school that was basically training children to get ready for prison. And every day, I'd be writing songs, working our day jobs, Odd jobs, selling cigarettes, magazines at kiosks, whatever, waiting tables, drinking all night. Anyway, I'm playing songs for my brother all the time. He's always going, eh, it's pretty good, huh? It's pretty good, huh? It's pretty good. One day, I play the song, I Don't Want to Be. And I played the hook, and my brother's standing at the edge of the piano, at this little apartment I had. And he goes, that's your f***ing hit. You finally got one. You f***ing finally got it. 
He freaked out. Really? Yeah. I said, really, you think so? You finally got it. And it was I Don't Want to Be. Yeah. And uh, ironically, I had already signed a publishing deal um, with Warner. And so I was a writer already, but I hadn't written that song yet. And I essentially got signed to Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Chapel, on a song called More Than Anyone, which ended up being a B-side on my first record. Yeah. But when I wrote I Don't Want to Be, that's the one that made my brother lose his mind. And uh, and so ultimately, yeah, that was my first hit, and it, and it did. It changed my life. And, you know, you go from, you know, playing for, you know, a couple bucks you know i was already making a living in new york you know i was playing bar rooms and i was i got to the point where i was doing actually pretty well yeah um in those bars i could, i only had to really play one night a week i had the rest of the week off because i was making really good money um but i would play out multiple times a week anyway so i'd do my money gig once a week and then i'd like throw on a guitar or whatever and then i'd go play these other dates that were not official dates, you know, like down by Trade World Trade Center mm-hmm. after nine eleven. I would go play there every uh, once a week. A place called, that's no longer there, but I'd go down there because I knew the workers were down there and stuff like that. I want to play like a little local gig and stuff yeah. where they'd be hanging, and, um, and so I'd still play several nights a week. But I knew that I could. I was like in a pretty luxurious position as a musician, just playing gigs. That that my money gig was once a week, and it was good enough money to get through the week, which was crazy in New York, you know, because New York's expensive. Yes, but I had a good following, and um, my friends were showing up, and buddies of mine were just promoting me, you know, just guys that are drinking buddies of mine. But yeah, man, my buddies playing, you know, it's like you know the hang, how the yeah. hang is, you know, and uh, um, but going from that environment where your folks are coming to the shows and they're happy about a couple hundred people out you know coming out yeah. at night to seeing you on the road and you know playing with you know heroes and your heroes and stuff um life changing do you yeah. know what i mean and it's not like i was it's not like i start i had a hit and all of a sudden we were rich you know that wasn't it at all cuz you're not you no, know, I. But but, but it's still the psychological. It's a just. It's, it's a, a justification, right? Like it, well, all it's, it's validation. That you, that's what I meant to say. It, I guess. It, it's validation. So suddenly you have this. It's an it's an emotional wealth. Yeah. And which, by the way, you know, you're walking on water. Which, by the way, I feel like is actually more valuable than real wealth. It is. Yeah, it is. You know why? Because it's health. Yeah. It's your health. And it also can you feel push you good. forward for a long time. Yeah. You know? Whereas yeah. actual money can only push you forward until the, it runs out. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh and so that 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 moment in your life and that um that that being on the way up is a special time. Yeah. Too, you know? And Where, you're what, twenty Five. I didn't get a record deal until I was twenty six. Okay, so you I had twenty six, twenty seven. Yeah, when yeah, I turned a record deal down when I was twenty one. I had moved to New York. I had been working at a lumber yard, and um, you know, like packing trucks and like, you know, packing flatbeds and you know, tacking together kitchens and 
you know, building some bull wine racks and, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't no carpenter, you know, but I could swing a hammer, you know? So, um, you know, it wasn't like you wouldn't want to live in my house yeah. that I was building for you, but I'll show up to work, you know, and uh, do the job. And at that time, I was like, oh, f*** it. I got to get out of here. And me and my brother who were like – I played one gig in New York City in 1997, September. I think it was September 27th, 1997. And then we were at the bar at the place called The Bitter End, which is the first place to ever give me a gig. It was run by a guy named Kenny Gork, a lovely guy. I've been there. You've been there? Yes. place is an institution. Mm -hmm. Everybody's played there. Everybody, right? So um, my brother and me sitting at the bar, and he said, we got to live here. I said, yeah, you're right. I know you're right. He said, when do you want? Let's pick a date. We'll be here by that date. What date? I said, I don't know. Six months. Six months from right now. He said, what's today? I said, I don't know. (laughs) March 4th, 1998. We moved into Hell's Kitchen. And uh, I had sold my truck. I had a little money from working at the lumberyard. And uh, <laughs> up. Um, I had already turned down a record deal. And so I had been given this bum-ass offer from a major label, you know. And the guy was like, why would you turn this down? What do you got going on? I said, not a lot. I work at a lumberyard, you know, upstate. I make dick, you know. <laughs> I said, I walk into your building. It's really nice. I've seen the statue uh, you know such and such won't say because i want to give it up and um all this beautiful building location and i know that if i sign this deal i don't own this building that doesn't make me anything i'm just property here you know i said but even though i just work at the lumber yard i have complete freedom and your deal it's not a good deal and that tells me you just think i'm not good enough so that's more my problem yeah. You know, I, I said, I think your deal would reflect what you think of me, and you don't think much of me. So that tells me I'm just not good enough yet, and I need to go work on it. That's all. And so I wasn't upset at them. I just knew that I wasn't good enough yet. Because if you were good enough, and if it was the right time, or if you were marketable, whatever that was, it was really on me, you know? I didn't want to blame them. A lot of people like to blame somebody else. And you know what I say when they blame somebody else? That's bullshit. That shit is on you. You understand me? Mm-hmm. So if the offer is bad, you're bad. You are worth what they're offering, by the way. Okay? Because if they really, really need you, the number's going to come up. If you're doing a great, 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 great job... Your value is higher. So for me, I knew I wasn't doing a great enough job because if I was, they would have thought my value was higher. So I knew I still sucked and I needed to work on it. And it took me years longer and I'm happy that it took me years longer. I'm happy that they knew I sucked because had I gotten signed then, what if accidentally... I would have had a hit and still sucked. Now you suck and you're famous. Yeah. 
and you're famous for sucking. <laughs> I know. You understand that, what I'm saying? That's my life. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's worse. I believe anybody can get famous. What yeah. matters is what you get famous for. Hopefully, it's for being good at your craft, you know? And so, whatever that thing is, I, I thought it was important that that their deal told me that I sucked. Yeah. Because you know why? Because I did suck. And the deal got better when I didn't suck as bad anymore. You know and, what I mean? And then I hope you renegotiated it and got it a little bit better. Signed with somebody else, but yeah. but I, I did, and and that was more. But that deal was an indication of, hey, don't suck as bad anymore. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, and and um, that 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 to me was a lesson. You worth what they're offering. You know what I'm saying? Oh, not your not your worth what they're you're offering. You're worth what they're willing to pay you. Yeah. Because when you start negotiating, if that price doesn't come up, it's not because they won't pay me. It's you're not worth that much to them. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And for me, I wasn't good enough to be worth any more than that. Yeah. And to me, I that I had to take that upon myself to say. My songs, my songs aren't good enough. You know what I mean. I need to hone my craft. I need, I need to get better at this craft, at this, at this skill. I'm not taking this seriously enough. You know, because if I was, their math would reflect that that yeah. I've put in the time for this. You know, and um, uh, for me, it was a lesson. I wasn't mad at them for for the, a bad offer. I thought the offer was perfectly. Uh, I thought that that offer was the perfect lesson, to be totally honest with you. Earlier you were talking about a question that you were asked, and it meant something to you. And normally I do a, like a rapid-fire thing at the end of the show, but I don't want to do that, actually. I want to kind of mm. end it with your own... I do nothing rapidly, as you can see. Right. No, but, but I also love I'm a it, Charles like, Dickens novel. All the words. All of them? Yeah. I get paid and per syllable. beautiful. <laughs> don't lie. I will say this, so like actually, like it, I was noticing this because my fiance is from New York, yeah. and it's very funny. Like New Yorkers are very interesting to me. Yeah, uh, you're New York when you want to be New York. When you have to be. When you're talking about like being tough and like going through shit, mm-hmm. you're New York. And then when you're like yeah. sentimental, then yeah. all of a sudden you're like non, like yeah. That's right. There's no, there's no dialect anymore, and I and I find that yeah. very interesting. Like when you want to be tough, it's a it's not mm. even yes, it's dialect, mm. but it's it's almost like a state of mind that you mm. get into mm. of like, okay, I need to get back to where I'm from, I'm from mm-hmm. and I gotta talk like it, it's it's very interesting. Like if you mm. go back and listen to this episode, mm. there are moments when you're talking about your childhood. And t- times that were tough, mm. and I notice it because I'm a radio guy. Mm. W- the way that you change your voice, mm. but you're also a performer, and, that, and that's what you do normally. But it's very mm. interesting when you want to be mm-hmm. who you are; mm-hmm. it bleeds out of you, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. I love that about you. Earlier, you. you said something. You asked the question uh, if you could change. Anything about your life, mm. 
what would you change? Is, was that the question that you posed? Was that your dad asked that? I asked my father that. You asked your father that. I said, what would it be? If it changed anything in my life, what would it be? You're an adult now. <laughs> How do you answer that? Hmm. I probably would have rented instead of bought. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin DeGraw, everybody, on the Wells Cast. <laughs> Everyone listen to, uh... Oh, sh- that really, really tickled That hit home, didn't it? It caught me, <laughs> uh, Oh, sh- uh, How men think on, uh... Wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry you got me there at the end. <laughs> you felt that. Did it you? felt good. Uh, I love you so much, dude. Thank you for being honest and real Thank and you, like uh, emotional. Yeah, and, I appreciate uh, that. Obviously, I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you, dude. Ditto, You're man. Ready. Thanks for that, man. Of course. Pre- I appreciate your time, man. What yeah. a gr- what a great show. He has a great show. Your great interview. Total natural. Oh, thanks. Do you want to get a beer? Yeah, man. Beers, beers for sure. All right. See you, buddy. See you, man. Thanks for your time, brother. Subscribe to Wells Cast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. It's the internet. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.